You're listening to the Ultimate Game Faces Podcast with your host, Rich Key, delivering insight into the fascinating life stories of his featured guests. Our special guest today is 93 years young, played 12 years in the majors, won 122 games as a right-handed pitcher, two no-hitters, set a record by striking out 14 Yankee batters in the 1953 World Series, a Brooklyn street renamed after him. He witnessed the game during a transitional period, seeing train travel giving way to planes, day games to night, white to black integration, radio to television, and east coast to west coast. Boys of Summer is much more than a title of a famous book. This iconic phrase represents a special period in Brooklyn history, a beloved baseball team. It speaks to ballplayers named Pee Wee, Duke, Campy, Jackie, and Carl. It also speaks to the very best in America. Today, we're going to revisit Boys of Summer by way of this gentleman's own words, Carl Erskine. Carl, we welcome you and look forward to our conversation. Thank you. Hey, listen, my pleasure. Well, Carl, you know what I decided? I just decided that I was going to take my notes that I had scripted questions to talk about, and I tore them up. And I decided, if you don't mind, what I'd like to do with our time and our conversation is to take ourselves back to the clubhouse at Ebbets Field for our conversation there instead. And I'd like you to just take yourself back sitting on that wooden stool in front of your locker in that clubhouse and just share with us what it was like. Look around, see the the different teammates you had across the room, who was your locker mates next to you, and just I'm going to throw out a few names to you, Carl, and all I'd like you to do is to give me your first impressions and what comes to your mind as far as your fellow boys of summer. The first one I'm going to give you is Duke Snyder. My roommate for 10 seasons. Duke and I were as close as brothers, and not only as teammates, but in our after baseball life, we stayed in touch. Our wives are very close friends, and Duke is not with us now, but Duke was my best booster. He knew I had some arm trouble. And I think he geared it up and played better when I pitched, but he made some great plays from saving my bacon a few times. Duke Snyder, great Hall of Famer. Here's our next person, Gil Hodges. The quiet, strong man. Gil was from Indiana, southern Indiana. He and I were recommended to the Dodgers by the same scout, a scout named Stanley Fiesel from Indianapolis. Gil and I had a a very uh, a, a very fine relationship in Brooklyn. A couple boys from Indiana, and our organist was Gladys Gooding, uh, and she used to play back home in Indiana every time Hodges hit a home run or every time I came in to pitch. So besides the national anthem in uh, the 40s and 50s in Brooklyn, the most played song was back home in Indiana. Our third name, Mr. Vin Scully. Well, Vince was, in 1950, this kid from uh, Fordham University joined Red Barber as our lead announcer uh, as his sidekick. 
They were both redheaded. And when I saw Vince Scully, who probably was in his mid-20s, I said, it's a pup out of Red Barber. (laughs) Sure enough, Scully developed a lot of his style working with Red Barber. Having been in Vince Scully's company, he likes to tell the story about how one day at Ebbets Field, he was with you in the dugout, and you happened to pick up a baseball, and your thoughts, you expressed your thoughts speaking to the ball and said, I wonder what you have in store for me today. Do you recall that day and that moment and what took place that day? I absolutely do. That was a warm-up ball. I was getting ready to go out and take my warm-up pitches. Uh, it took me about 15 minutes uh, pre-game to warm up for the game. And while I was waiting to to go out to start my warm-ups, uh, I had this uh, baseball, a new baseball, and I was tossing it up and down. I said to Vince, I wonder what this little pill has in mind for me today. <laughs> I went out that day and pitched a no-hitter against the Cubs. Or you should have talked to that ball more often. At least you spoke to it one <laughs> You, yeah, you spoke to it one it. more time. Right, exactly. Here's, here's, a, here's a character from Brooklyn that might bring back some fun memories. Hilda Chester. Hilda Chester and her cowbell. Yeah. <laughs> she had a cowbell, and she would ring that, and she talked to the player. She had a rough voice, and she'd say, Pee Wee, Pee Wee, look at me when I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was a real character. I think the Dodgers in Brooklyn gave her a free seat just to get her to come to the ballpark. She was the attraction. Here's here's a gentleman. Uh, I'm interested in your perspective, Mr. Walter O'Malley. I like Mr. O'Malley. I thought I learned a lot from him. Uh, he was not Branch Rickey. Uh, Branch Rickey himself was a, a fantastic person. Walter O'Malley, too, had it a broad range of talents. He was a good businessman, uh, and he knew how to – he was an attorney by trade, but uh, he was on the board of the uh, board of directors of the Brooklyn Dodgers and eventually gained enough stock to be in control uh, of the club. He bought Mr. Ricky out. I admired Walter O'Malley because he's not thought of highly in Brooklyn because they think of him as the guy that moved the team west, but – he tried in every way possible to stay in Brooklyn. Wanted to build a stadium, stadium with his own money. He wanted to go down to the heart of, of Brooklyn itself. We could not get the city fathers to agree. So finally, L.A. began to romance him. He finally took that opportunity uh, because he was very futuristic. But he did not, he was a New Yorker. He did not want to leave Brooklyn. But the circumstance prevented him so. It was more the fault of the city fathers in Brooklyn than it was Mr. O'Malley. But he gets the brunt of the blame. Do I recall this correctly, but during that period of time, Walter had the Dodgers play a half a dozen games or so over at Roosevelt Park in Jersey City during the season? Yeah, I actually pitched a game over there. Uh, He was trying to uh, use any means possible to break down the barrier of the city fathers that Robert Moses actually was the, uh, the corp, was the, um, I don't know what his title was, but he was stronger than the mayor actually, uh, developing all the roads in, uh, in, in the New York area. So, uh, Mr. O'Malley booked us to play in Roosevelt Stadium 
I think is a kind of a ploy trying to negotiate with uh, the city fathers. And um, so we did play there. It, it had no future at all, but um, that was uh, an unusual move. But I think Mr. O'Malley was trying to find a way to put a little pressure on um, Robert Moses and get a piece of property in downtown Brooklyn. The irony is that 60-some years later, the arena that now stands for the Nets play is exactly where, where Walter wanted, wanted to build to the Dodgers, and they wouldn't give him the property. <laughs> and now, and now that property is exactly where uh, the Nets stadium is. I've got another player for you, Jackie Robinson, of course. Well, I'll tell you, Jackie. If you don't mind, I'll tell you a quick story. I Absolutely. was in the second year in pro ball, so I was young and. Uh, we played the big team. The real Dodgers came to Fort Worth, Texas, which is double A. My second year, this was a preseason game, and I pitched the first five innings of that game against the real club. I didn't know anybody on the big team. I knew the names, but I didn't ever meet anyone. So after the game was over, uh, somebody came over to our dugout and said, where's Erskine? And my teammates said, Carl, Carl, he wants to talk to you. It was Jackie Robinson. He had come across the field to look me up and call me by name. So I stepped out and shook hands with him. I didn't, had never met him. And he said, young man, I hit against you twice today. You're not going to be in this league very long. Boy, what a boost that was for a kid in the What, a, what a compliment that season, is. Before the season was halfway through, I'd won 15 games. They called me to the Dodgers. And when I went to my locker, Jackie was the first guy to come to my locker, and he shook my hand again and said, I told you you couldn't miss. So that that was how I met Jackie. I've got another person for you, Happy Felton, the Knothole Gang. Happy Felton was a musician, and uh, he played in some of the big orchestras in the big band days. But uh, somehow he conceived the idea of the Knothole Gang at Evans Field in Brooklyn. And it was a little contest they'd have before the game. Uh, three players, young players, little leaders, would come and do a few drills. And uh, one of the players on the team, one of the Dodgers, would judge which which boy executed them the best. And he got to come back the next day and uh, interview anybody on the team. So Happy Felton's Nautical Gang was very famous in Brooklyn. We all liked it because... If we got chosen to be on the be one of the players on it, we got fifty bucks. So <laughs> we cheered for we cheered for Happy Felton. Good going. Uh, what about a young man by the name of Sandy Koufax? I believe he came straight to the majors, did he not? Well, he or... had to because uh, he was paid a bonus, and the, the owners had a a rule that if you paid a player more than twenty thousand dollars or more as a bonus. You could not option him to the minors. He had to stay on the big league roster. So to Sandy's disadvantage, he came straight off the sandlots of Brooklyn, green as, a, as he could be in baseball, and he could not be sent to the minor leagues to get all that good training. And so he stayed on our bench. Uh, he had to learn on the job. So the first five years for the great Sandy Koufax, his record was like 35 and 36. He was a 500 pitcher, and he just had no techniques on the mound. He didn't know how to hold the runner on base. He, he didn't get any of that training. 
So it took him five years until he was convinced that he wasn't going to stay in baseball. And he actually told me he was going to quit. And we were in L.A. by this time. And he was going to buy into the radio station in Los Angeles. And then he came back during that year, about 59, I think it was. And he said, Carl, I decided that the Dodgers have paid me all these years. I've never been a good producer. And so i got to go to spring training one more time and pull out all the stops, give them my best, best, my double best. And if I still feel the same way at the end of next season, I am going to retire from baseball. Well, you know what happened. Right. He went to spring training. He gave it all he had. He had he became one of the most dominant pitchers in, in the history of the game. And uh, Hall of Fame. He made the Hall of Fame in five or six years. I said, with Sandy being a very quiet gentleman, was he that way during his playing days? I know he was a rookie in 55, but was he quiet or was he, did you see a different Sandy Koufax? He, he was, he was very quiet. He never asked any questions. He never went to the, you know, the pitching coaches in the, in up till about the, the mid fifties, the pitching coaches were all catchers. That seems strange now. But no team except the Yankees finally hired a former pitcher as a pitching coach. So Sandy got no training in the minors. Uh, the catchers, Joe Becker was our, our catcher, Clyde Superforth was a catcher. These were our pitching coaches. But Sandy never went to them and asked questions. He never went to the older pitchers and asked questions. He was very quiet, very laid back, and uh, he still is to this day. Pee-wee Reese, was he, I know he was your captain. Was he also the team leader? Pee-wee was a real pro. I always think of Pee-wee as a, as a real professional. He was the captain, and on the, on the infield, uh, we had Hodges, Campanella, of course, was a catcher, uh, Jackie and Pee-wee. All of these guys could have been managers. But Pee-wee was the ultimate professional. Uh, he never raised his voice. But he could uh, he could give you a command that would uh, sink in fast. Uh, he was a good I call him the best pro I ever knew. So Pee Wee was uh, a producer as well. He's a clutch player. He made the big plays. He got the big hits, and so he's certainly a Hall of Famer. On that ball club in around 1955, what ball player stands out to you that kept the clubhouse loose? Who had a sense of humor? Who kept things light and uh, was fun to be around? Well, there's a couple of them. Gene Romanski was an outfielder, and uh, he's a Polish kid, and he's a handsome guy too. But he had a lot of—he had a real sense of humor. Uh, one of the great stories is we were playing our way north uh, after spring training, uh, going up to New York to start the season, and we played in Atlanta, and uh, the manager got a letter in the clubhouse it said if Robinson takes the field in Atlanta, he's going to be shot. And so they read that letter in the meeting before the game, and it got real quiet, and everybody was kind of stunned. And so in that uh, kind of tense moment, Hermansky said, hey, Skipper, I got an idea. If we all wore number 42, this guy wouldn't know who to shoot at. (laughs) (laughs) It broke up the meeting, but... And the other guy that had a good time on the bench was Rocky Bridges. Uh, he, he was a utility player, and that's a tough role to play. Uh, you never get to play unless somebody's hurt or, or you're playing the team. It doesn't matter or something. But 
But Rocky kept us all loose on the bench. So those are the two that come to mind that were, that were kind of like, uh, had, a, had an easy spirit. Carl, you lived in the Bay Ridge area of Brooklyn. Did you like it? I mean, coming from Anderson, Indiana, there's a big change between Indiana and New York. Did you enjoy Brooklyn? You know, it's ironic that you asked me that because we thought, my wife and I and my two little boys, uh, we thought going to Brooklyn would be overwhelming. The fact is, in Bay Ridge, and I think in other parts of uh, New York City, the, the neighborhoods were like a small town. And in Bay Ridge, which we knew, uh, knew the cab drivers, knew the barber shop, we knew the deli, uh, the guy that owned the deli, uh, we knew the butcher. And so it was like a small town. So instead of being overwhelmed uh, with the size of this big city, we felt like we found a new home. To this day, I still hear from some of the people that were neighbors uh, in that uh, in that part of in Bay Ridge. Duke lived in Bay. Duke Snyder lived in Bay Ridge. Kiwi lived in Bay Ridge. Uh, Preacher Rose lived in Bay Ridge. We were a couple three blocks apart, but that was like a home away from home. I lived uh, I lived on Lafayette Walk, and uh, if I'd pitch a good ball game, uh, I'd come home and they'd have a street party. Uh, balloons in the trees and uh, dancing in the streets. <laughs> it was a big celebration after I come home with a win. Describe me the feeling of, in addition to the 14 strikeouts, how did it feel to be in a World Series and strike out Mantle four times in the same uh-huh. game? Well, I had a good day that day. My stuff was excellent. I had great control. And Mickey was a free swinger. Uh, but I had a pitch that bothered him. He 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 had, he just hated it. I threw a straight overhand curveball, which broke. It started about your waist and break down around your ankles. <laughs> and uh, Matt would chase it, chase it, chase it. He couldn't hit it. Uh, so one time in the in the '52 series, uh, Mantle buttoned on me with two strikes, and I thought he didn't know the count. Uh, how would a home run hitter like Mantle bunt on two <laughs> bunt? So some of the Yankees were nearby one day, and I said, hey, how smart a player was Mantle? And they said, well, he, he was smart. And I said, well, he bunted with, on me with two strikes. I thought, well, he, the dummy, he doesn't know the count. And they started laughing. They said, oh, he knew the count. He told us before he went up to hit, if that little so-and-so gets two strikes on me, I know he's going to throw me that nasty curve. I can't hit it. So I'm going to burn it. <laughs> I said, that's the highest compliment my curveball ever had. Carl, who was your hero in baseball? Well, as a kid growing up with Babe Ruth, because uh, he was the name in baseball. And in a way, he still is. Although I will tell you this, I thought no player would ever have a stronger name in baseball than Babe Ruth. I changed my mind after I played with Jackie for nine seasons and the impact he had on not only baseball, but on our culture. So I say Jackie's the biggest name in baseball now. Carl, I've asked you to reminisce about your friends throughout your career. I'm going to close by asking you to share what these five individuals, Danny, Gary, Susie, Jimmy, and Betty, mean to you. Well, I tell you, I could throw everything away, all the clippings, maybe even the rings, the World Series rings. 
what I got was the most beautiful family. And starting with Betty, she was 14 when I met her in high school, and we'll be married 73 years in October. Uh, she's been there every step of the way. She sweat just as much blood as I sweat sweat. <laughs> She's been a great wife, a great mother. Uh, my oldest son, Danny, uh, fine high school athlete himself, uh, mostly in football. He's a good uh, left-handed quarterback. Uh, Gary, two years younger, uh, Gary was also an outstanding athlete in basketball and baseball. Uh, he got drafted by the Dodgers. Took a full ride at the University of Texas, was drafted by the, uh, the Reds, uh, got hit in the eye with a golf ball uh, when he was home on a break, uh, took him right out of his chance in baseball. Uh, but he turned out to be a very successful businessman anyway. Susan, uh, sweetest little girl, uh, I got a picture of holding her in my big Rawlings glove when she was three months old, giving her a bottle when Betty brought the family over in spring training at Vero Beach. <laughs> I'm holding Susie in my big Rowling's glove and uh, feeding her a bottle. Jimmy was born Down syndrome. Now, Jimmy has had a marvelous life. He was supposed to live to be mid-30s. He just celebrated his 60th anniversary, uh, April 1st. Uh, he's been to Dodger Town, Vero Beach. He's had a uniform of the Dodgers on. Uh, he's, he's hit after the regulars got through playing. So we pitched to him. He hit him and run the bases, slide on his belly at home plate. <laughs> Jimmy has, has had a wonderful life and he's been a blessing to us. He's a, he's a marvelous, loving young man. I would say it's safe to say, Carl, that all six of you have been a blessing to each other. I'm going to close out with one question to you, Carl. And that is most young kids grow up hoping and dreaming of being a professional famous ball player or forming their own band. You did both. <laughs> well, well, I, I always liked music, but I never was trained. And my dad had a harmonica laying around the house when I was a kid. I picked it up and if I could whistle a tune, I could figure it out on a harmonica. So that's just been a hobby of mine. Uh, when I came back after baseball, uh, a lot of my buddies were musicians, and I got to playing with them, and uh, we formed a little band, and a lady asked me one day, what's the name of the band, Carl? And I said, we don't have a name. She said, well, you got to have a name, but i gotta, I got to put it in the program uh, here at the theater. So you got to have, so what kind of music do you play? I said, we just play old stuff. She said, that's a good name, old stuff. So the name of my little five-piece band is Old Stuff. <laughs> and that's the music, not the name of the, uh, not the age of the band. But uh, yeah, I love music and uh, I've enjoyed playing. I still play. Uh, I've played uh, Dodger Stadium, National Anthem. I've played uh, the NBA games in Indianapolis for the Pacers. I've played the National Anthem and uh, at several ballparks. So it's just a fun hobby for me. And you also played the National Anthem. Uh, the last game played at Dodger Town, Holman Field, oh, correct? Yes, I did. Yes, right. That was in uh, 2008. That was the last camp that we had in Vero Beach. Carl, it's truly an honor to speak with you, and I sincerely thank you. For those listening, I say thank you as well. 
and look forward to our next time. Well, my Carl, pleasure, and it's an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good night now. Goodbye.